Let's turn this morning to the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians. As you remember, we are looking for the uh, are looking at the pieces of armor. Uh, we're told again in this chapter, because of the wiles of the devil, because we do face a true foe uh, who is real. He is a real creature, real being. And as such, then, he has his ways, he has his wiles, he has his uh, devices that are out there to snare us. Well, our duty, as we see there in verse 11, then, is to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand and so forth. And so what we've been looking at these last few weeks is this, these pieces of armory that we are to take up, that we are to put on. And that we're to use as we continue our pilgrimage, as it were, to the celestial city. And as we're heading to heaven. And uh, this is a very real thing. This isn't something we've dreamed up. And it's just a delusion that we are all under. Believe you me, this is the truth of God. And um, uh, just as it's true that there is a heaven, there's also a hell and there is a devil. And we can't believe one, or logically, we couldn't, shouldn't believe one over the other or without the other. And so the reality remains, and we need to put on the whole armor of God. Well, this morning, let's take up verse uh, 17. Remember, last week we said that we are to take the helmet of salvation. And now this morning, we're to take up, as it says here, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So this morning, we will look then to the sixth piece of armor. And he says here, it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, the nice thing about verse 17 and about this particular piece of armor, when it comes here to the sword of the Spirit, we don't have to labor to find an interpretation as to what this would represent. When we speak this morning of the sword of the Spirit, the text itself graciously tells us what is meant. When we think of the sword of the Spirit, the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit himself, in other words, would have us to realize what he's speaking about here, what this figures, what this is a... uh, the imagery that is set forth here is the Word of God. So, it's the Bible. It's the Scriptures. That is the sixth piece of armory known as the sword of the Spirit. And so it's the sword of the Spirit or the Word of God or the Bible or the Scriptures that we are to pick up, as it were, and we are to use as a sword. So it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, because I have a lot of text that we'll be turning on today, I will not introduce any further this. We'll get right into the... Uh, points that we're going to be dealing with. I'm going to be using a lot of Scripture. Since we're dealing with the Scripture, I thought this would be a safe way. I normally write out many of my texts so you don't have to be uh, fumbling around, or me fumbling around for that matter, trying to find the particular verses that we're going to be quoting. But I am actually going to hopefully wait a few moments while you're looking to that you can see these things we're going to be dealing with because we are dealing with this very thing, the Word of God. And as any Christian knows... This is fundamental, this is foundational to our Christian life. We enter into it by the Word of God, and we continue into it by the Word of God. So the Bible, brethren, is a very important piece of weaponry. 
to the Christian. It's not to say any other things are unimportant, but we would not know about those other pieces of armory without this piece of armory, the Word of God. So, we see then how it's the base in all things as we come to this. Again, we're not ruling out anything else or the importance of anything else, just the idea that how do we know who and what God is in a saving sense apart from the Scriptures. He's not revealed in nature in a saving way, but only in the Word of God. It is the revealed Word of God. So the first thing I'd like us to see is that a sword was the main weapon for a soldier. Now, as we look at this, we're looking at the imagery here. We see a man who is getting ready to go forth in battle. He's putting on, as it were, the particular pieces of his armory. We began there, you remember, in verse 14, with the idea of having the loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness. Our feet were to be shod with the preparation of peace. We're to take the, the shield of faith. And then he says, we were to take the helmet of salvation. So it looks like we've got it almost all together here. And so now he tells us for the sixth piece, though, we need to pick up our sword. Now, most of us are very familiar with what a sword is. Some of us probably have uh, decorative swords at home, or uh, when we were children, we may have made our... We took, used to take picket fence things. They made great swords, had a little point on the end, and those were great little swords that we could wheel around and uh, hurt one another with and that sort of thing and scare mom to death with. Those, we all are very familiar, aren't we, with what a sword is. So we don't have to really do a lot of thinking as far as the, the imagery itself is concerned. But what we want to notice here is that you need to realize a sword was something that a soldier went everywhere with. Now, he may leave off his breastplate. He may leave off his helmet and some of these other pieces, but he would never leave his sword. I don't know what they teach them in boot camp, but I'd be one of the first things I'd tell them is don't leave your gun lying around. If you're in enemy territory, you make sure you have your gun uh, locked and loaded. Is that how they say it? I don't know. But the idea, you're to be ready with that weapon. And this is what the sword of the Spirit is. It is our weapon. You notice none of the stuff that we've been looking at so far really in them themselves a weapon. They're part of the armory, but they're not a weapon. This particular weapon is both on the offense and for the defense. This is a weapon that could take blows. It could defend and deflect. Or it could be a weapon that could also be used, you know, for the stabbing and, the, and that sort of thing. So, a man who was a soldier and he had this weapon, he could either defend himself or he could attack. So, it was a very important piece of weaponry, just like today, if a soldier has his M16 or whatever weapon they may have, uh, he can either use it to defend himself or he can use it to attack. He can either help himself or hurt others, so to speak. So that's the idea of the main idea behind the the, uh, of the weaponry of us of the sword. It was the main weapon for the regular foot soldier. Secondly, we want us to see that the Word of God then is called in this place the Sword of the Spirit. It's amazing that he would call it that, wouldn't he? This, in the imagery again, would be a piece of metal, sharpened, pointed, perhaps on both sides of the sword could be uh, uh, sharp so that it would cut both ways. 
Uh, they say Roman weaponry, uh, which Paul obviously would have in his mind at this moment, uh, was of that sort. It was something that you could stick with, and it was something that you could cut, and not only cut, but you could cut both ways with. And he calls it here the spirit or the sword of the spirit. It's possessive, in other words. It's the spirit's sword. Whose sword did this really belong to? Well, it, in, in a uh, governmental thing, it would be a government issue thing, wouldn't it? Uh, in our day, soldiers don't go to war with their own weapons. They don't come home, go home and get their shotguns and forty-fives that they may have in their closet. They're, they're given us uh, the weapon to use. And brother, we need to have that kind of mentality when it comes to this piece of weaponry. The Holy Spirit has designated for us what is to be the main weapon in our arsenal. I'm not to go home and create a weapon. I'm not to go home and get my own weapon. I am to use the weapon that God Himself has issued me. And that is the sword of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's sword. Now, it is so for several reasons. That is, it's the spirit of the sword of the Spirit. First of all, because He's the author of it. The Spirit of God is the author of the Word of God. The Scriptures, you remember, were are, not were, I had were in my notes. Actually, there are. It's in the uh, present tense there in Second Timothy. The Scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Many who put the author of the Bible into man's hands, they're wrong. Now, it's true, the Scriptures were penned, as it were, by man, but the writer really behind the Word of God is the Spirit of God. They only wrote or were allowed to write what God wanted them to do so. And God is such a God that He can control the events of a man's hand, don't you think? If He can create the world by speaking it into existence just by His mere speaking, out of nothing, as they say, it, has, it, it doesn't bother my faith at all to believe that He could take a man and take that pen in that man's hand and have him write just exactly what He would have him to write. If God could take my sin, our sins, and place them upon Jesus Christ and have Him punished and have Him under the power and the dominion of sin and the law for three days and three nights and then gloriously raise Him from the dead, I have no trouble whatsoever believing that God can be the author of this book. If He can take a soul and bring it out of the darkness and the slavery of sin and Satan in the world and grant it pardon and forgiveness and put on a righteousness that's not His own and give Him a title to heaven itself, translate Him into the kingdom of light, I have no trouble believing that God can inspire His Word. It's beyond me why anybody would want to be and say they're a Christian and say they believe God's Word and then make this out to be that this is not God's Word. But we have people all the time. We have seminary professors sending out young men, placing doubts into their minds of just just what the Bible is and who its author is. That's why you don't really want, of course, there's nothing new under the sun. But a lot of modern commentaries is just full of that tripe. 
All that stuff about who did and who didn't really read the Bible. Or uh, read, yeah, that too. Uh, write the Bible. We were dealing with, uh, in our class yesterday, in Second Timothy, and the authorship of Second uh, Timothy is doubted by so-called scholars. They don't believe that Paul wrote it. But if you notice in First or Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1 itself, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, if they deny the Pauline authorship of this book, why would you believe anything in this book? Because the very first word, at least in our English Bible, is Paul. Is it in English or Greek? You can tell me later. But the point of the matter is, here it is. And yet there are scores of men and women who make their money, by the way, teaching others to be doubters of God's Word. And brethren, if this was a human document and a human document only, then we have wherewith to worry, don't we? How many mistakes have I made just this morning in my speaking? Well, that's what happens when we have human authors. They're not infallible. And infallible children means that you cannot err. You cannot make a mistake. The Word of God is infallible because the author behind the Word of God is not really man who did pen the words, but it is God Himself who is infallible. He cannot make mistakes. He cannot err. And so the Word of God is that very thing. It's the very truth, the Bible says, even from the beginning. So from Genesis 1, verse 1, all the way to Revelation Uh, At the end there, it is the very Word of God, and it is the truth. It's the Scriptures. And it's the Word of God because it is, this is a really, really brilliant statement, it's the Word of God because it is God's Word. And by that, it simply means it's His Word. It's possessive. It belongs to Him. It's not ours in that sense. It's His. It's His Word. Remember Jesus again, who certainly ought to have known better than anybody, any Bible professor, that's for certain, in any school about the Bible. And what did he say about the Scripture in John 17 and verse 17? Sanctify them with thy truth. Thy word is truth. Two things that you note there. One, it's God's word. Thy word is truth. Second, that it's true, isn't it? Is Jesus the truth? Is he a liar? Was he mistaken? Did he not read the latest commentary of dealing with the Bible for him not to know that? Of course not. That was God himself who was expressing that. And it was the Word of God. Well, it belongs to him. God wrote it. Uh, you know, we think about the Ten Commandments even. They, they were really written by the finger of God. Now, I realize there's probably people that deny that. But in do, uh, Exodus 31, here's some of these verses that we'll be turning to. Exodus 31 and verse 18. Exodus 31 and verse 18. Short verse. He says, and he said, it is not the voice... Nope, that's not it. I'm in 32. Excuse me. Uh, 18. And he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai two tables of testimony, tables of stone. Notice this. Written with the finger of God. 
You say, well, is that true of the whole word? No, God didn't take a tablet and write all the word of God on it. But the point of the matter is, it's just as true. Whether it was Paul or Peter or Luke or Matthew or John or James or Jude, it was written, as it were, really, by the finger of God. Exodus 32, verse 16. Across the page, he says, And the tables were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. What a wonderful thing to know that this is the Bible. This is the Word of God. And brothers, you say, well, what's so special? Not everybody believes that. Not everybody believes the Bible is the Word of God. That's why they have to put it in confessions. That's one of the things we have to publicly announce and confess. There, I believe, therefore I speak, that the Bible is the Word of God. You know, many times in the Old Testament we read a, Thus saith the Lord. Why? Because it was His Word that was being spoken. In Isaiah, for instance, in chapter 34, and verse 16, it's called the book of the Lord. Isaiah 34, verse 16. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king... Oh, I went too far over. Sorry, I was in 36. 34 and verse uh, 16. That's a good verse too, but that's not what I want to say. Seek ye out of the book of the Lord and read. No one of these shall fail. None shall want her mate. For my mouth it hath commanded, and his spirit it hath gathered them. Notice here he's encouraged to do what? To seek out of the book of the Lord. Whose book? The Lord's book. Whose writings are these? It's the Lord's writings. Isaiah 40 and verse 8. The grass withereth. And this ought to sound familiar because Peter takes up the theme in his book. The grass withereth. The flower fadeth. But notice here, again, the possessive. The word of our God shall stand forever. Whose book? It's God's book, isn't it? It's called also in Psalm 19. Here, David. And you remember, David was commanded as a king to write out the law of God. And so, David did so. But he also knew it from going to worship and all that sort of thing. Remember, um, that was a, a thing that a good Jew did. But in Psalm 19, verse 7 and 8... Notice here, it's possessive again. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Here again, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The judgments, verse 9, of the Lord. And all of those are dealing with the, with the, with the word of God, the law of God. And again, notice they're all in that possessive idea. This is the God's Word. This is the Lord's Word. This is the Lord's truth. The statutes of the Lord. The law of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord. These are all His. And that's why it can be called then the sword of the Spirit. Another reason is because He is the interpreter of the Word. You know, if we get anything right in the Bible, if we interpret anything correctly in our expositions, whether at home or here in the pulpit, we need to realize it was the Spirit of God who gave us that ability 
He is the true... Not only is He the author, He is the interpreter. And what, what better person, and He is a person, to interpret His own writing? If I wrote a letter, then they, not only is the authorship mine, but the meaning would be mine as well. Not just the person who read it, that would be his or her responsibility, but the meaning behind those letter I wrote is really my meaning. And it's my meaning that I want the recipient of that letter to receive. And so the same way with the Word of God. He is the author and he is the interpreter. Psalm 94 and verse 12. Psalm 94 and verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and but he goes on, and teachest him out of thy law. Who is it that teaches us in reality out of the law of God? You say, well, it's you, Pastor. Well, I'm only the instrument in causing you to understand. The real author behind every true interpretation, interpretation of Scripture is God, the Holy Spirit. Notice in Second Peter, <clears throat> going over the New Testament now, Second Peter chapter 2. No, excuse me, Second Peter chapter 1. And verse 19, he says, For we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. It didn't come that way, did it? The, 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 the prophecy itself did not come that way, nor the interpretation of that prophecy. For he says in verse 21, to back that up, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of old God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Even when the prophets spake and they gave the interpretation of the word, it came from God. Wasn't just Jeremiah dreaming that stuff up we read in the scripture reading this morning, but God who was behind that. And that might have been why those princes got so mad at him. And then second, First Corinthians two. This is a pretty standard verse in this line of thinking. First Corinthians 2, verse 13. Here, Paul is certainly dealing with spiritual matters. The new covenant in particular. And the preaching of it. He says here in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Because the natural man, but, notice the contrast, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. That is, he cannot know them 
savingly and spiritually because this is a spiritual book dealing with spiritual matters. And the true interpreter and the only right interpreter of God's word is God himself. So again, there is another reason why it is called the sword of the spirit. Because he is not only the author, but he's the interpreter. Then the third reason, and there's probably more, but this is where I'll stop with this aspect. The third reason is because it is the spirit of God that empowers his word. Uh, the fancy word would be efficacious. That means it works. The Word of God is efficacious. In John 6, the words of our Lord Jesus in this matter. John 6 and verse 63. John chapter 6. He says, It is the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are Life. Who is it that empowers the Word of God? God Himself. So, three things there. He's the author, He's the interpreter, and He's the one who empowers and enables it to do what it is sent to do. And His Word, He says, will not come back void. Now, I labor all this for the following reasons. First of all, not because I don't think you know it, because I think you do. But we labor this to, first of all, to affirm to you that the Word of God is just that, the Word of God. You say, well, what's the big deal there? Because, brethren, we're living in a world, we're living in a time, we're living in a generation that is so smart, they think they're smarter than God. They have outwitted God, they think. That's why they don't think they need Him. And that's why this book is not what they think it is. That's why they say all the evil and terrible things about the book. You say, well, I believe it's because just Christians aren't living like they ought to. That may be a part and parcel of it, but the real reason is because they know what we claim it is. And that's the Word of God. You see, when we go back and say, this is God's Word, that suddenly tells the world, we don't listen to you any longer. We don't think your judgment is true and right. We don't have to listen to you. We don't have to follow your, your advice, your philosophy, your counsel, your ideals. We follow the book. And that's why they hate it. Because we will not follow them. It's a book that speaks against them. It testifies of them and against them. It already has them pegged. You here this morning who are lost in your sins, it's no surprise to God and it's no surprise to God's Word that you live and breathe and have your being in the way that you do. It's not a surprise at all. Anybody with eyes can see in the Word of God. So, we need to be constantly reminded, brethren, because there is so much out there to tell us it's not the Word of God. This is why we say so. And we of all people who claim to be Christians ought to be convinced that Scripture is divinely inspired. That it is given by the inspiration of God and that it is God's Word. Now, I say all that in a general sense. Because, you know, you can ask anybody, what is the Bible? And they can give you several answers, couldn't they? If you go to a papist 
and you ask him, what is the Bible? What will he do? Or what will she do? Well, he'll tell you or she'll tell you what her church tells her or him, what the word of God is. The hundred and whatever, how many books they have. I'm not sure how many is in their canon. I'm not really interested in how many books are in their canon. But they include the Apocrypha and all the other books that we have. You go out to Barnes & Noble and you'll find books that says the lost books of the Bible. That maybe should have been in the Word of God. So you can ask all sorts of questions. Or you can ask someone who believes in the book and they'll tell you it's the 66 books of this Protestant Bible which we hold dear. So how do you know that? Because that's what it says. Well, how do you know it's what it says is right? Because God has taught us that. Proverbs 22, look it up. It's in there. We often have these little debates with some folks. You know, Why do you believe the Bible is what it says it is? And how do you believe your Bible is the Word of God? Because that's exactly what the Spirit of God has taught me. Look it up. It's Proverbs 22, it tells you. This is what the Scriptures teach. That I will know for certainty that this is the Word of God. Amazing, isn't it? And that's why, by the way, this kind of stuff needs to be talked about. Because, you know, everybody has a Bible. Everybody has their own definitions. And that's why, by the way, confessions can be helpful. Because when in our confession, by the way, it starts out telling you what is the foundation of all of our religion. It is the Word of God. And then it begins to tell you what the Word of God is. It even specifically gives you the books of the Bible which they considered the Word of God. The 66 books of our, what we call, the Protestant Bible. Do we believe it? We better. There is no other. This is it. Well, if we say that, and I do, then we also have to admit that it's all sufficient. Because the Bible itself claims sufficiency in itself. Over in 2 Timothy, we haven't got there yet. You're probably wondering, when am I ever going to quote this verse? 2 Timothy chapter 3. And here we see it. He says in verse 16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. Here he gives you the fact that it is given by inspiration, not was, but is, of God. Secondly, he tells us here what it's good for, what's the use. It's profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Those are the reasons, some of the reasons, as to why God's Word is given to us. It's profitable for these things. And then notice verse 17. He's speaking here to Timothy, Pastor Timothy, that the man of God may be perfect, and he means they're complete, everything where it belongs, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The Scripture is that. Nothing else. It is the Scriptures and the Scriptures alone that are the things that cause us to be perfected and thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Timothy, or Paul here is using some imagery. He's talking about going into someone's home, for instance. And in that, you open the door, for instance, and you go into the living room, and all the furniture is in place. You got your couch, you got your coffee table, you got your lamps, you whatever else that belongs in the living room. This is kind of the idea that Paul is talking about here. You walk into that room and everything there that needs to be, it's all furnished. It's complete. You don't want to drag anything else in. You don't want to go to a garage sale and bring anything else in there because this is it. It's completed. 
Well, that's the idea that Paul's telling us here. That the Bible for the pastor, and for everybody else for that matter, is just that. It's thoroughly furnished. You don't need to add one more stick of furniture to this book. That's why, by the way, we hold to the what they call sometimes the regulative principle. Uh, the Baptists used to call it that the Bible was uh, the, the only standard for all standard for faith and practice or something of that nature. Now they shorten it down to uh, the regulative principle. Same type of thing. They just don't know what it means anymore. But that's what we believe. This is it. I cannot improve on God. You cannot improve on God. As smart as you think you are, and as wise as you may be, you cannot improve on what God has already declared in His Word for us. That's why we read such passages as that, as well as, for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And verse 2. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 2. Verse 1 says, Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you. Notice that. I teach you. For to do them, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers giveth you. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Now, he doesn't mean here, this is not a passage of Scripture that's teaching the completion of the canon or adding things to the canon. That's not even what that's talking about. It's talking about the very fact that what I give you is sufficient. You don't take away from it, and you don't add to it. Now, God is going to add more books. There's more books after Deuteronomy, aren't there? So, that cannot mean what that means. That doesn't mean you don't add to the books of the canon here. It's talking about the idea that what I give you is sufficient for you. Don't you add to it, and don't you take away. And if you do that, he says, this will be then the way that you do what? Keep the commandments of the Lord your God. That is, as we trust that this is God's word, we believe that it is sufficient. This will be what will help us not, or what will help us to keep the commandment. Notice the, the connection, the condition. You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Then turn it over to uh, Deuteronomy 12. And the last verse of that chapter. Whatsoever thing, no, what things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. Now here again, he's not telling us here that Joshua, you were wrong by adding Joshua right after Deuteronomy. It's not what he's talking about there. This is a text of scriptures talking about what I tell you is sufficient. Don't you add to it and don't you dare take away. Now, we're going to show you some folks who did here in just a few moments. Look in uh, uh, next one is Proverbs 30. Here in the center of the Bible, so to speak, Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. 
He says, every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. And then the final one is Revelation 22, verse 18. I know these are all familiar to you. Revelation 22, 18. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. So, brethren, that's why we're not to dream this stuff up. That's why your ideas, as well as they may be, are, and my ideas, as good as they may be, God may not necessarily be impressed with them. Like you and I may be impressed with our thinking. And there was a folk, though, who did, thought they were pretty impressive in their thinking. It's found in the book of Mark, chapter 7. And we'll tie this up here in a moment and quit. And then pick up tonight. Matthew, or Mark, chapter 4. Here was a crowd of people who thought that they could be wiser by adding... And taking away. And notice what he says. You remember the context of this? The Lord's disciples were going through the fields and they were eating. And they didn't wash their hands. And the law, the Pharisees had a law. And the scribes that, you know, you don't eat unless you wash. You don't come from the marketplace. And uh, you don't come home and eat unless you wash your hands first. And the pots and all those sorts of things they saw about verse 4. And then Jesus says this about them. He answered and said unto them, Well, hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites? It is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now he's going to explain all that. Howbeit, in vain do they worship me. Now how do they vainly worship God? Well, here's how they do it. Teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So they're adding now, aren't they? They added the command, you need to wash your hands before you eat. Now, children, if your parents tell you that, they're not talking about your sanctification. They're talking about you just obeying your mommy and daddy in that. But this is not what he's talking about. They made this as part of Scripture, as it were. This This was their doctrine. And by the way, This isn't talking about the temple, is it? They're walking out in the fields. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines and commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. And this is what they did. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whosoever curseth father or mother, let him die to death. But ye say, if a man say to a father or his mother, It is Corban, that is to say, a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother. Notice verse 13. Making the word of God of none effect through your traditions, which ye have delivered And many such like things do ye. Well, here again, we see 
a lot of that going on in our generation, don't we? Adding and taking away. Not saying, oh, this isn't God's word. But by their teachings, that's what he says there, by their teachings, they're, they're actually adding to and subtracting the word of God. And when you do that, Jesus says two things. One, what? You worship me vainly. And two, you make the word of God of none effect. Because while you're so busy doing the other things that you've dreamed up, you just don't have time to do the things that I've already told you to do. And brethren, this is the danger of all this tomfoolery going on in the house of God today. When we begin to put stipulations and do things that are not taught in God's word, that doesn't give people time to do what is really taught in God's word to do. That's why we do hold strongly whether to the regulative principle of interpretation of Scripture. It doesn't mean it's easy, because we have to peel away tons of tradition and baggage that all of us bring in, including me. So this is not an easy work, as some make it out to be. It's a hard work. You may say, well, if I just knew I had to go by the Bible, that would be easy. Oh, yeah? Try it. And then you'll find out just how difficult it is. Even if you knew what you should do, and if you're a pastor, you've got others out there you've got to convince, first of all, before you can do anything. And that is so very hard. We're so, as much as we say we're reforming and we reformed and all that kind of stuff, oh, we don't mind changes. and Well, we do. It's very difficult to change, isn't it? And a true pastor will take that into consideration and he'll be patient. And it may take years to move things around. But that's what we're heading for. Because we know the hearts of men. Well, in all of that then, what have we learned this morning? I hope, if anything, you need to realize that, one, the interpretation itself is found in Scripture for us in verse 17. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Our weapon, if we're going to fight the devil, though we haven't got into this yet, will be the Word of God. Not the words of men. And then the next thing we've learned is that this is the Word of God itself. And brethren, how we need to get back just to that very simplistic and simple idea that this is what it says it is. Don't fight against it. Receive it as the Word of God. And then go forth and believe it and practice it.